How's it going, everyone? We're dropping an extra special episode today that's actually only going to be available for a limited time, so you're going to have to listen to it while it's available. Back at the end of April, which is just about last week, we had our spring fundraising event, and we had just, it was an amazing event. We, we it, was, it was kind of a new thing for us. We, instead of having one real, like, main event, we were able to simulcast uh, to several different locations. We had a main location in Butler and Greensburg, and then from there, we were able to kind of live stream and simulcast to multiple different locations. And during that event, we had an absolutely incredible speaker. Her name is Melissa Odin. She has a, a ridiculous story and was just, uh, it was such a joy to listen to her. And her story was so phenomenal that we want to make sure that we're able to, to share it as much as we can. So we're making it available to our podcast subscribers uh, only until May 29th. So it's only going to be available for the next 30 or so days. So make sure that you give it a full listen and share it by the end of that. And then we're going to have to take it down. So hope you guys enjoy Melissa Odin's story. All right, hopefully you're making your way back to your seats, not only those who are in front of me, but I'm talking to you, those at Community Alliance in North Maine. As you're making your way back, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ahead and give a brief introduction to our guest speaker. Again, I'm super excited about you uh, all being able to sit underneath her and just hear her story. So Melissa is a master's level prepared social worker and the founder of the Abortion Survivors Network. As an abortion survivor herself with the background in crisis counseling, addiction treatment, and child welfare, she's passionate about helping others embrace their lives, find healing and love and forgiveness in the midst of difficult circumstances. She's the author of You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir, and she will be releasing a new book, which is an anthology of survivor stories and abortion survivor history in fall of this year, so be looking out for that. Melissa is a devoted wife to Ryan and the mother to her two daughters, Olivia and Ava, and they reside in Kansas City, Missouri, not Missouri. And so uh, it is, without further ado, it is my honor and privilege to introduce you to our guest speaker this evening, Miss Melissa Oden. Proof that I trust Marty a little bit. I let him have my phone. I'll check the photos later. I am honored to be here tonight, and I had the great opportunity to share last night, too, to support life choices. And if you saw us kind of giggling at our table tonight, I got to tell you a little bit about what that really is about. And I figured this out last night when I first got here to Pittsburgh. If you don't know the team at Life Choices yet, if you haven't seen the joy that they exude, even as they spoke to you tonight, I got to tell you, you have a joyous, fun team at Life Choices. I have enjoyed this time with them. So if you haven't had the opportunity, yeah, Marty. I mean, clearly, we're just talking about Marty, right? Marty and the rest of the team. I share that because I think about the joy they exude and the heavy work that they do on a daily basis. Sometimes it's hard to keep that joy when you see people facing so many difficulties. And so I think that is a great example of how they 
are resilient as a team, as we're talking about resiliency tonight. But as both Marty and everyone else has been sharing tonight, I keep thinking to myself, I wonder how that impacts the women and the children and the men who come through their doors to experience people who are joyous, who you know have something that you want in your own life. There's something truly beautiful about that. So what a wonderful example your team is for all of us. And when I think about resiliency, it's one of those things that sometimes we think is only there for other people. As I share my story tonight, I know there are parts of my story that people find absolutely mind-blowing. Sometimes people look at me and say, Melissa, you've overcome things that I can never even imagine. Maybe. But maybe you've faced obstacles in your life too. Maybe you've been hurt by abortion too. Maybe you know what it's like to be resilient. So tonight, as I share my story with you, my hope is, of course, to highlight why the work of life choices is so important. But I also hope to encourage you in your own life that after you leave here tonight, this isn't just a one-time event you came to to support life choices. This is an investment in this ministry, and this is an investment in your life, too because we all have the opportunity to continue to grow and to learn and be more resilient. And I come here tonight with a very different story, as you can already hear through my introduction. My story may seem like one that doesn't fit with life choices, but I'm gonna tell you here tonight, it very much does. Some people in our world think I'm a little bit naive but I truly believe that if a place like Life Choices would have existed for my biological mother, Ruth, almost 44 years ago, when she found herself facing her unplanned pregnancy with me, I truly believe that her life and my life, the lives of our entire biological family, could have been so dramatically different. Marty and the team don't know this little detail, but as I was leaving the event last night, there was a heaviness in my heart, something I hadn't felt for a long time. And I sent a message to a family member last night asking where it was in Pennsylvania that my birth mother, Ruth, once lived. She lived in Franklin. <laughs> I'm supposed to be here tonight to tell her story, not just mine, but hers. I know that Ruth fits most statistics when it comes to abortion. Ruth looked an awful lot like the women who come through the doors of life choices still today. Ruth was 19 years old. She was a college student. She wasn't yet married to my biological father when she found herself facing that unplanned pregnancy with me. And what I know about Ruth is that she fits another really big statistic when it comes to abortion, one that isn't often talked about in our society, and that's coercion. It's interesting, isn't it, 
to live in a culture that has been so deeply impacted by abortion that we hear the word choice and right wrapped up in the word abortion time and time again. But if you listen to women's experiences, like the team of Life Choices does every single day, if you read through statistics, like the ones you can find from the Elliott Institute, they identify that over 64% of women, 64% identify feeling pressured into their abortion. And those are just the women who will report that pressure. For most women, there really is no choice when it comes to abortion. That's why this ministry is so important. They're providing true choices, resources, information, support to women in a time of great need. And I so agree. The end goal is for abortion to be unthinkable. And that is something we can all do together. As you'll hear tonight, it's taken me most of my almost 44 years of life to piece together Ruth's story and mine. When I first learned Ruth's story, I was told initially that she chose to have the abortion that was meant to end my life. But as I started to learn more about her and their family, I suspected that she was one of those women who was coerced. Sadly, what I've learned in recent years is that it was taken even one step further for her. That saline infusion abortion that was meant to end my life, that forever changed Ruth's life, isn't something she was just coerced into. It was actually forced upon her against her will. Every other choice the door was closed on. Marrying my biological father, door closed. Living with family members who offered that as a possibility, door closed. The only door that remained open was to the St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa. The door that would lead to a secret forced abortion, bypassing hospital regulations and procedures at the time. I know if you're like most people, you're wondering who would it have been that would force and make a secret abortion take place? Someone with great power, someone with great knowledge about when life begins. Why? Because they were a medical professional. They also happened to be my grandmother. I'm sure the team of Life Choices can share many stories with you, like Ruth's, where well-intentioned friends and family members, sometimes medical professionals, sometimes members of the clergy, can coerce or even force an abortion, not thinking about the ramifications of that pressure. I know in my heart my grandmother knew the truth about life, she lived it in her work as an OBGYN nurse. She knew it by going to church every Sunday. But that unplanned pregnancy was not what they had planned for Ruth. I know it's not pleasant to hear about abortion procedures. <laughs> but on a night like this, when we're celebrating life-saving, life-transforming work, I know it's even more difficult. 
So I'll share just a little bit about that procedure with you so you can understand just how resilient Ruth and I are. That saline infusion abortion that was forced upon her involved injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid surrounding me in the womb. The intent of that toxic salt solution was to poison and scald me to death. Usually the procedure lasted about three days. They would inject that toxic salt solution. If the child was fortunate enough, their life was ended within about the first 24 hours. And then the rest of the time was spent inducing labor with the intent of that deceased child being expelled from the womb. No matter what people believe about abortion in our society, most people tend to agree that what happened to me in that procedure was horrific. But I also hope you stand with me tonight in agreement that what was done to Ruth in that abortion procedure, that was also horrific. That's why we're here tonight. That's why life choices exist, because every woman deserves better than what Ruth went through in that abortion procedure. And clearly, I deserved better than what I was subjected to. I work with survivors around the world, as you heard in my introduction. That is my greatest blessing in life. I've now connected with 384 other survivors, ranging in age from a little guy who just turned a year old to survivors in their 80s. And I know that raises a lot of questions. We can talk about them later. Of those survivors, most will not have any medical record of what they survived. Clearly, we know our culture wants to silence stories like mine, leave them undocumented for the sake of abortion. But my medical records clearly indicate that I survived an abortion attempt. Through those medical records, we know that I soaked in that toxic salt solution for not 24 hours or three days. I actually soaked in it for five, even longer than the standards of that procedure. Why? I would call it a miracle. I know lots of miracles. I also know that I'm probably just a little bit stubborn. My husband would tell you that. I'll own it, right? I think the Lord gave me a very clear spirit of being resilient from my earliest beginnings. We know that the abortion procedure continued on and on because they could not successfully induce Ruth's labor. And they were starting to worry. And not worry about my life, but hers. They were worried that her life was going to end. Things were not going the way they planned. And so on the fifth day of that procedure, when they finally induced her labor, their hope was restored that she would be okay. And the hope remained that I would be delivered as a successful abortion, otherwise known as a deceased child. That day in August of 1977 is the day that I was accidentally born alive. I think we can give God a round of applause for that, can't we? When I survived that failed abortion, I weighed a little less than three pounds. I could fit in the palm of your hand. I weighed two pounds, 14 ounces, which indicated to the medical professionals that Ruth was much further along in her pregnancy 
than the 18 to 20 weeks that the abortionist had written on my medical records. And I know if we have an ultrasound tech in the room tonight, you probably can already guess how far along I probably was. A neonatologist wrote in my records, he estimated I was likely 31 weeks. And I can tell you I hear of circumstances like mine time and time again, when abortions are completed and the abortionists have no idea how far along in a pregnancy that woman really is. That's why many survivors exist in the world. I know you wouldn't know it by looking at me that that day when I was delivered alive, I was still fighting for my life. I suffered from severe respiratory and liver problems, seizures for an extended period of time. The doctors actually thought I had a fatal heart defect because of the amount of distress my body was under. But believe it or not, there was argument about whether I would be provided medical care. I share that with you, not to be political, but to let you have a glimpse behind the scenes of the truth about abortion survivors. Circumstances like mine still happen today. My parents were told years ago that the abortionist demanded that I be left in that hospital room to die. But I now know that it was someone much closer to me who gave that demand. Maybe you've already guessed who it could have been. It was my grandmother, once again. Not only did she force the abortion, she monitored it, and coming face to face with me, her firstborn grandchild, she demanded that I be left to die. And I know that's hard to hear, but I don't share that with you for you to condemn her. I share that with you because I want you to understand that this is what happens when abortion changes our culture. People make life and death decisions about lives like mine every single day, regardless of their relationship. I share this with you because I think there's also a life lesson here. No matter what I've ever learned about my grandmother and this abortion, I don't hate her. I love her to the point that it makes me emotional. No matter how many times I've shared our story, I love her as a fellow broken human being, knowing that she probably never could have loved me in the same way in return. And that's okay. I've forgiven her. And I share that with you because this is a struggle, I think, for most of us in the world. Little grudges seem things that we can't ever get over. But I can tell you it is worth loving the people who can't love you in return. It's worth forgiving the unforgivable because it changes not only their life, but it changes yours. This is why I do the work that I do because I've been set free from my pain and I'm on a journey to set other people free at the same time. No matter what demands my grandmother made about my life that day though, I can tell you that there were ordinary people just like you and me who were called to do something very extraordinary. They defied her orders. I was rushed to the NICU that day by a nurse who was unwilling to just leave me there to die. And I know that not only because the story was passed down to my family, 
but because a nurse contacted me directly a number of years ago when my first book came out. She was working that day in the NICU when the tall blonde nurse rushed me in, unwilling to leave me to die. And I know most of us will never be in that exact position where we are literally saving that child's life. But I can tell you your words, your actions, they have power. You will never know this side of heaven whose life you have impacted. But I guarantee you, you are making a difference every single day when you speak words of truth and love and you support the people you encounter in your life. How could she have ever imagined that decades later, that baby that she was there with would learn her story and go on to try and change the world? I'm grateful. My story is their story. Just like the stories of the children and the mothers and the men and the families through life choices become all of your stories. And my story doesn't end there. After I survived that failed abortion, I was placed for adoption. For descriptive purposes, I always have to say my parents are my adoptive parents, but trust me, they're my mom and dad. Still all these years later, my mom and dad are my mom and dad. And they raised me to know Jesus from my youngest age. They raised me to know that I am deeply loved and not just by them and not just by God. But they raised me to know that my biological parents loved me enough to give me life when they couldn't care for me. That's all my parents wanted me to know about my biological parents and my beginnings to life. Like so many parents in that position, they were afraid of how the truth would change mine. But God intended for me to know the story of my survival, and he allowed it to come forward in a very unplanned set of circumstances when I was just 14 years old. My older sister, who's also adopted, faced her own unplanned pregnancy. I was just 14. She hadn't yet graduated from high school. And like so many of the women who come through the doors of life choices, she had so many fears, so many anxieties. When our parents found out that she was considering every option, we know what that means in our world. When they found that out, they decided to do something very important. They broke their silence on my story. They told it to her, hoping that she would understand just what a huge decision she was facing in her life. I can't believe that that was almost 30 years ago now that my sister was told the story of my survival. I'm happy to tell you my oldest nephew is about 30. He's a member of the military. He's a single father. He is one of the most outstanding men I have ever been honored to know. He knows that he could have been another statistic when it comes to abortion. But more importantly, he knows that he was made for just such a time as that. Because I don't think there's any other way my parents could have ever decided the time was right to share my story with me. My sister had learned the story of my survival. And like any good teenage sister, she didn't keep it a secret from me. Some of you know teenage girls. 
Some of you have had sisters, right? I'm raising two daughters. I know a little bit about what the future might hold. My youngest can't keep a secret to save her life at this point, right? My parents never suspected that my sister would tell me about that great secret before they could. But it all unfolded on a cold October night. You know, I sat my mom down after a horrible argument with my sister. I was expecting to get in trouble for arguing with her, to be perfectly honest. What I wasn't expecting was for my mom to speak words that would change my life forever. My sister had shouted at me in an argument. She said, you know, Missy, at least my biological parents wanted me. And that's what I sat down to explain to our mom. I was never expecting for her to have to tell me that my sister had that perception because she knew my story. My mom said that night after hours of dodging the question, she finally just spit it right out and said, Missy, your biological mother had an abortion during her pregnancy with you, and you survived it. In the survivors that I work with, people find out at very different ages. I was on an interview today with some other survivors. One survivor that I work with found out when she was about nine. She's now 47. She spent 38 years of her life thinking she was the only one. I have survivors who don't find out until they're 70, till they're 80. There's such a mixed range of stories, but I can tell you that whether you're 14 or you're 70, news like this changes your life forever. I knew in that moment of time, God alone spared my life. I knew he had a purpose and a plan for me. I could feel it stirring in my soul. But I think sometimes it's really hard to embrace your purpose when you're in the midst of great pain. And maybe some of you know what, that, what that's like. I did not want to be the girl who survived an abortion all those years ago. At the age of 14, I just wanted to be like everybody else. And as you can imagine, I stumbled on this journey. I struggled against who God made me to be. And he saved me from myself time and time again. And he allowed me the most incredible opportunity to heal. The most healing thing I ever did in my life was forgive my biological parents. The first time I forgave them was so long ago that I can't even tell you when it was. I was a teenager. And I say first time because for me, forgiveness is not a destination I simply arrive at. Forgiveness is a deliberate choice I make every single day because life still happens. Can you imagine when I had my own children and came face to face with them, how it reminded me of how close they came to never existing. We choose to forgive as we are forgiven. And that set me out on a path to ultimately be here tonight. I started looking for my biological parents when I was about 19. I knew God was calling me to do something with his story. And before I did it, I wanted to find them. I also was working to find my medical records because I knew if I ever came forward with this story, the world would scratch their heads and say, no, things like this don't happen. It took me 10 years to obtain those medical records. 
It took me 10 years to find out who my biological parents were. And maybe you've lived out similar years in your life. You know, I lovingly refer to these years as my desert years, where I was desperately seeking God's will, matching it up against the plans that I had laid out for my life. I was trying to learn to trust in his perfect timing. We, we talk about that a lot, don't we? Oh, and God's perfect timing. Do we enjoy that necessarily? I don't. I'll be really honest. I'm probably one of the most impatient people you ever could have known 20 years ago until I entered that phase of my life where I had to surrender everything to him. And when I surrendered everything, of course, his will was done. I tried so many times to obtain those medical records and was told time and time again, nothing existed. And lo and behold, in 2007, those medical records arrived. In them, they contained lots of information about that abortion I survived. And ultimately, they committed a very big mistake when they sent them to me. In one little tiny corner, they forgot to black out Ruth's name. <laughs> That's how I learned who my biological mother is, as well as my biological father. You know, we live in a world that calls that a HIPAA violation, right? Sorry, medical folks, <laughs> social workers like myself. I don't call that a HIPAA violation. I call that divine intervention. Because after 10 years of doing things my way, God showed me once again that he's in charge of every little detail. And because God's in charge of every little detail, I started searching that night for my birth parents. And they're never going to guess what I discovered was in the details of their lives. I was living in the very same city as my biological father. I grew up in a little town in Iowa and moved to Sioux City knowing that that's where Ruth's abortion had taken place decades ago. I moved there to finish my master's degree. That's what I was thinking in my head. I wasn't ever thinking, you know, I think God has a greater plan of restoration and reconciliation. It wasn't on my radar. And then suddenly, there he was. I prayed about it for many months before I finally did what I knew God was calling me to do. And that was reach out to my birth father sent him a letter to his office and not his home. That was my one condition of trying to protect him a little bit. Sent it to his office, telling him essentially everything I've told you all tonight. I'm alive and well. I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. I'm so blessed. And let him know I would be waiting, living in the very same city if he ever wanted to communicate or have a relationship with me. And I'm still waiting. And that's okay. Think about how many years God gave me to prepare for that possibility. And as I close my time with you tonight, you're gonna to learn that it's actually much more complicated. Life is kind of messy sometimes, isn't it? But I love that in the midst of the mess, God is still working. And you're gonna see that as I close with you tonight. My birth father never replied to my letter. And as you can imagine, I had to learn to trust that God had a plan in the midst of that. I decided at the same time to really reach out in faith to my birth mother's family. I couldn't find Ruth through my searching, but I had found her parents. You know that grandmother that I told you all about? 
Anybody else ever do things in life and look back on it and go, whew, can't believe I did that. My husband would probably tell you that's what every day is like with me. I mean, God knew what he was doing when he put us together because my husband just trusts that I follow God. And it doesn't always make sense initially, does it? You know, I look back on sending my grandparents a letter and part of me thinks, oh my goodness, Melissa, I cannot believe you did that. But the other greater part of me says, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Because I think they needed to hear from me as much as Ruth did. I didn't know back then that my grandmother played the role in the abortion taking place that she did. My grandfather very courageously replied to my letter. In his, he admitted that my live birth was not their intention that day at the hospital. I think that was courageous. He went on to share some details about Ruth's life with me. And I wanna share two of those points with you because they remind us again why the work of life choices is so important. One point that he shared was that Ruth had never told anyone about her abortion. And I know she's not alone in that. Whether it's you or someone else, I want you to know that you're loved, that you're forgiven, that this ministry exists for healing even after an abortion has occurred. When you think about how many lives have been impacted by abortion, we're talking hundreds of millions of lives, not just the children, but the women and the men, the clinic workers, the abortionists. Our nation needs to heal before we will see a culture of life truly restored within it. So I don't, I don't fault Ruth for never sharing her story. I understand it so deeply. But he went on and shared a final point with me, and it was a curious one initially. But I understand it now, and maybe you will too. He closed his letter by letting me know my messages would not be passed along to her because they were completely estranged from one another. It makes sense, doesn't it? When we now know what really happened all those years ago, of course it makes sense that their relationships have been severed. And yes, people think what happened in my family is dramatic, but I can tell you that I see it in families around the world. Abortion doesn't just end a life most of the time. It impacts relationships. It changes families for generations unless healing occurs. Man, we've got a lot of work to do, folks. And not just life choices and not just me, but all of us. All of us can do something to turn back the tide from the devastation of abortion. That's the last time I heard from my grandparents, though, was in 2007. That's also when I courageously stepped forward with my story for the first time. When God moves, he moves quickly, doesn't he? If you guys can cue up a photo for me, the very first time I shared my story was not terribly far from here. I was actually on Capitol Hill. That's a really friendly place for a person like me, don't you think? Oh, man. Fairly friendly crowd the first time, but I went home and I told my husband, oh, you know, I'm really thankful for that opportunity, but I am never going to do that again. Ugh, I was so sick to my stomach. I'm a bundle of nerves. I'm a social worker. I'm not a public speaker. And God said, hold on, Melissa, you're just getting started. And of course, I was just getting started. What I didn't realize is that that really bad case of nerves I thought I had 
was a horrible case of morning sickness with that child you saw on the screen. That's our Olivia who just turned 13 earlier this week. <laughs> and it was during my pregnancy with her that I started to loosen my grip on my career to accept this calling that God had set out for me. As I was starting to travel the world to advocate for life and life abundantly for people, what I didn't know is that my birth father was actually home fighting for his. There's that complication. He never replied to my letter because he passed away about six months after I sent it to him. And I only learned that because I had developed a habit of Googling his name on the internet from time to time. That was my way of staying connected to him. That last time, of course, what I found was his obituary. And I questioned God in the midst of my grief that night. Maybe you can relate to what that's like too. I cried out to God, how could that ever be his plan? To look for him for so long, be in the same city and then have him gone. And God spoke so plainly back to me. He said, be patient, Melissa because my plan is much greater than the one you had in mind. And it's always true, isn't it? It may not look anything like we expect it to or want it to, but God's plan is always greater. And as 2008 unfolded, I got to see that great plan. God's plan involved Olivia being born 13 years ago at St. Luke's Hospital, the very same hospital where my life was supposed to end. And trust me, that was pretty high on the list of things I told God I was never going to do. But he made it clear that that was his plan of restoration for that hospital. And not long after she was born there, the man that you saw on the screen with Olivia came into my life. That's my grandfather that you saw in that photo, my birth father's father. When he passed away, they cleaned out his office and found my letter tucked in his top desk drawer. And as shocking as that news was to them, my grandfather and my great aunt graciously entered into our lives. My grandfather has been a part of my life until he passed away just about a year ago. And I wish I could tell you that I was united with all of my birth father's family. My grandmother was still married to my grandfather, but she could never bring herself to meet me because her guilt was that great. Her pain was that significant, and I couldn't fix that for her. Abortion impacts families. And as hard as it is to see people struggle through that, I still have hope, and I hope that you do too, because I know God is not done working yet. He's not done working in my life. He's not done working in yours. He's not done working in the lives of the women and the men and the children that are served at Life Choices. He's not done working in Ruth's. If you wanna pull up that final photo. In 2013, I moved to Kansas City. We could insert a couple football jokes here, right? The funny thing is, Ruth is a diehard Steelers fan. We moved to Kansas City, thinking that that is simply where my husband needed to be for his job in IT. But very quickly, I was contacted by a member of Ruth's family who broke those major secrets that my grandmother forced the abortion, that she was responsible for so many things. And she ultimately put me in touch with Ruth. That's Ruth that you see on the red, in the red on the screen. 
along with my half-sister Sarah and my half-sister Jennifer. When I connected with Ruth, you can imagine those were some pretty difficult conversations for her and I to have. And there was one big reason why it was so difficult. There was one final great secret about my life that I didn't even know. And that's that Ruth spent over 30 years of her life believing that I had died that day at the hospital. I know that leaves more questions than answers. We can talk about that later too. But what I can tell you is that day at the hospital, she was told the abortion had been successful. She was told, it's hideous, it's a monster, don't look at it. She didn't know if it was a little boy or a little girl. But what she did know was that she lived the rest of her life with incredible regret. That's why it was hard to communicate with me, because she questioned how I could ever love her. She questioned how I could ever forgive anyone in her family. And so we spent years building walls of trust and love with one another before we met face to face for the first time. Ruth is now a huge part of my life and my family. My children know her as just another one of their grandmothers. They know our extended family members. And because God cares about every last detail, I wanna share with you one final example of his plans of restoration and reconciliation in my life. Where do you think Ruth happens to live? You can take a guess. Kansas City, along with my half-sister Jennifer, we moved from the city where my birth father lived to the city where my birth mother lived, not knowing it. So when I say that Ruth is a part of my life, <laughs> I was just with her last week. This isn't just the story of one resilient baby surviving an abortion. It's the story of a resilient woman named Ruth who deserved better than what she experienced. It's the story of a resilient nurse who did the right thing for me that day. It's the story of a resilient adoptive family who knew that they simply needed to love me. And this is now your story too. And because of you, stories in your community will be dramatically different. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to Melissa's story and were encouraged by it. Her story of resilience really just, it speaks about what being pro-living is, is really all about. And it shows us that when we live out our beliefs, we can truly see culture changing, culture shifting around us, even if it's one simple, small act in one life at a time. I would like to thank you for, for being a part of our team. Uh, and, and listening to to this story and, and all the other stories that we've already shared, we're, we're so excited to, to bring these stories and so many more stories of culture change to you as we continue to move forward. I do want to take a moment just to say that everything that we do here at Life Choices, the, the four clinics that we run, the inn, the education program, the podcast, everything that we do is 100% completely and totally donor funded. Uh, we can do nothing apart from the support of our community. And while I don't want to make this huge, you know, big thing about finances, I, I, I have to say some of these things because honestly, this is, this is where we're at. This is the season we're in. The life-saving and the life-changing work that happens in and through life choices, it comes at a cost. 
And one of our core values here at Life Choices is transparency. And so we want to be very forthright about anything and everything. Our, our annual budget is just over $600,000. And that's what it takes. That's what it takes to run the four medical clinics that see hundreds of clients every single month. And we see babies, babies saved every single month, every single year. That number continues to grow. I, I believe we're at like 285 plus babies saved uh, since we went medical. Uh, this is that $600,000 is what helps us run a maternity home where we see homeless women come in and we see their lives changed and, and their babies born and they're relaunched back into society on their feet healthy. It's what helps fund an education program that sees thousands of students and inmates on a yearly basis and helps them to understand holistically themselves and, and their choices and helps them empower them to make healthy choices. It's, it helps us to support our staff who are on the front lines and helps them to support their own families. And again, I will say that every single bit of this is donor funded not government funded. We don't get any government funding. We get donations. We get uh, grants from people that we know, people in our communities, men and women like you that are listening. Without these partnerships, none of this is possible. And I know I understand $600,000 is a huge number and it can become so like cumbersome. When we look at that number as a, as a, you know, one big thing, that's so much, but just like we talked about in our last episode, which if you haven't checked that out, go give it a listen. We talked about Fortify and, and how change and how these big, huge things happen through small, tangible ways. So if you are able and willing to financially partner with us, uh, thank you. And if you're one of those people who, who has a big check and is able to give that, I mean, that's awesome. And we thank you. We cannot overstate how thankful that we are for you. But on the other hand, the those of us who are only able to give five ten dollars a month or or less you are no less valued and and are so much so a part of our family and we're so extremely thankful for you too together if we're able to join arms together link arm in arm and just be a part of this team together we're going to make a huge impact. And honestly, it isn't necessarily about the finances. If you were joining us, you're listening to this podcast, you pray for us and you, you are living out your beliefs and being pro-living. You're a part of this family too. You're a part of this ministry. You're part of our team. And we're just so thankful that you have decided to be a part of, of what we do and be a part of the culture change that we're seeing. So if you are interested in giving, uh, if you head over to the Life Choices website, yourlifechoicesinfo.com, I'm going to leave a link in the description. There's going to be a donate button at the top right-hand corner of the page. And you'll see there's a number of different giving options. I'm not going to list them here. You can go check them out. Uh, we would be just ever so grateful if you would consider um, partnering with us in, in whatever way that you can. And again, just thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of our team. Thank you for being a part of our family. You are absolutely awesome. You are loved. You are valued. Take care.